Have you ever found yourself wondering about the role that Canadians played in old-time radio? Well, wonder no more. During the next 60 minutes, we'll delve into the careers of actors, writers, and directors who went abroad to find work, as well as those who stayed right here in Canada. Join me as together we explore Canadians in old-time radio. Welcome once again to Canadians in Old Time Radio. I'm Devin Wilkins, founder and president of COTRA, the Canadian Old Time Radio Alliance, and it's great to have you with me again. To begin with, let's hear Don Gray, Marine Investigator, from our Made in Canada segment. And the episode we have for you is from July 19th, presents an ever-changing panorama of mystery and violence. A constant challenge to such specialists in crimes of the sea as Don Gray, Marine Investigator. My name is Don Gray. My business, Marine Investigation. That means shaking hands with crime and disaster. But whenever there's low play on the waterfront, whenever there's a situation that doesn't have the honest smell of fish or lumber or grain, then it's Don Gray, the interested party's hire, to kick it around for them. like driving around Stanley Park, Boston, don't you? After all the years at sea, I can't be seeing enough of the tall timbers, Ronnie. But I like to keep the water on one side of me just the same. I like to see the ships coming and going, too. What are the foghorns blowing for? It's clear. That'd be Point Atkinson, Ronnie. Probably hazy outside the Narrows. Uh, but you'll be learning all about that one day before you inherit your peppy ships. Does my daddy own many ships? <laughs> Plenty. And charters even more. He's been a hard worker, from dick boy to captain to motor. <laughs> that takes brains. And old Boston's only got sweat to give. Is that why he made you his chauffeur? Well, I sailed him a long time in the old days. Maybe he'd just kind of like to have someone around he could yell Boston at once in a while. Blow me! This lover's in a hurry. We'd better give him room. Heck, we'd better starve on him. 
Keep your hands on the wheel there. Don't move. Now, what's this? We want the boy. Stand. Get away from me. Bosun. Take your hands off that boy. Take your... What are you waiting for, Pete? Witnesses? All right. Oh, you murdered Hurry, Pete. Okay. office. Kane here, Irene. Want to speak to your boss, or is he? Oh, yes, Sergeant Kane. Sergeant Kane on the line, sir. Oh, again. Okay. Yeah, Sergeant, what can I do for you? Uh, nothing, you baboon. Nothing for me. I'm handling homicide. <laughs> okay, okay, and mishandling everything else. So what is it? Old man Blair. Horton Blair, the ship owner. Oh? He wants to see you at his home. It's about his boy. He's been kidnapped. Kidnapped? That's what I said. In broad daylight. In Stanley Park. Better go on out before the old man goes nuts. He'll tell you all we know. You better. Right away. Irene, what do we know about Horton Blair? Well, he's on our file. Mm, that's what I thought. Fairly Barron's case, wasn't it? That's right, sir. We filed him for reference. Mm. Oh, here he is. Read it. Uh, Horton F. Blair, born New Westminster, 1894. Chairman of Directors, Northwest Lines Limited, American Oriental Shipping Corporation. Began life in ship's forecastle, founded N.W. Lines, 1945. Married same year, Elizabeth Barr, prominent socialite. One child, a boy, born 1946. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth renowned for her beauty, a both for their hospitality and charity. Who put that in, last bit? I did. You want the picture complete, don't you? <laughs> okay. His home is at the tip of Point Grey, with the waters abroad in it, lapping at his feet. He loves the sight of Point Atkinson Lighthouse across the water... And the mountains lifting into the northern sky. And when the sun <laughs> sets in the street... <laughs> look, Irene, you should be in real estate. You've certainly sold me. So I'm going on out to have a look at it. So long. So long, Mr. Gray. It was just like Irene said. Only the sun was setting in a red mist, and Point Atkinson was sounding its warning to mariners. The house itself was modest enough, considering the owner's means. Horton Blair sat me down in his study, but he himself paced the bare floor. This is the foulest blow I've ever had in my life, Mr. Gray. I imagine. I don't understand it. I haven't a guess myself. Yet, Sergeant Kane said your boy had been kidnapped, and so on. In view of the note, I... I want the police held off. They were driving in the park, Stanley Park, Ronnie and my chauffeur. Since Ronnie was born, I've been afraid of kidnappers, Mr. Gray. That's why I hired Chris Nelson as my chauffeur, to watch him. Mm -hmm. Bodyguard? In a sense. He was an old bosun of mine, good character, good influence. Go on. Well, they went out for a drive in the park. An hour ago, the car was found near Prospect Point. Ronnie was missing. Chris Nelson was behind the wheel. His head was crushed in. Dead? They phoned me. He died a few minutes ago in the general hospital. And I say whether he talked? He never regained consciousness. There was a note in the car on the seat beside Nelson. It said, Your boy will live only as long as the cops keep out of this. 
Where's the nun? The police have it. Is that all? No ransom demand? Yeah, that was all, Mr. Gray. If they'd named their price, my God, they could have it. What about Chris Nelson? Don't you want his killer cut? It wouldn't help Nelson. Now. Oh. But Ronnie. Mr. Gray, apart from anything else, it'll kill my wife. I can't just do nothing. Uh, nothing you can do, Mr. Blair. Except just sit tight. Sit tight? It's not easy, but whatever they want, they've got to show their hand. When they do, I'll be around to play. Yeah, it could be them now. Yes. Uh, Mr. Gray, take the phone in the hall. You can miss it. Mr. Blair, you may call me Smith, if you like. A good anonymous name. All right. Mr. Smith, what do you want? I understand you're suffering a perhaps temporary loss, Mr. Blair. You know what's happened, evidently. Very well. How much do you want? <laughs> now, don't let's be indelicate about this, Mr. Blair. Cash is not what we have in mind. Only a little business to you. All right. Name it. I only want my boy back. Very natural. Well, Mr. Blair, the government has assigned you the task of shipping an engine to Hong Kong. A secret jet engine for boats. Is that not so? Go on. It's in your warehouse at Valentine Pier. Cleverly labeled refrigerator. And ready for shipment on the steamer Farndale. And under unobtrusive guard, of course. So? Your orders in this connection won't be questioned, Mr. Blair. We want the markings changed and the switch made. We want the engine consigned to Manila and shipped on the Verde. From there on, we'll take care of it. I can't do it. It's government property. I think you said something about wanting your boy back, Mr. Blair. I can offer you almost anything else. Sorry, but nothing else will do. Meantime, don't bother to have this call traced, Mr. Blair. It's a public phone. I'll check with you later. Is the boy all right? A little frightened, naturally. And by the way, in case you have any other ideas, he won't be returned to you until five days after the engine has been delivered in Manila. And of course, if there are any accidents, you may not see him at all. Goodbye, Mr. Blair. I heard. Sounds like foreign agent. That's it. Can I give you a drink, Mr. Gray? I guess you could use one yourself, huh, Junior? Tell me about this engine. It was confidential, top secret. But it doesn't seem to be anymore. Mm. It's a new type of jet for surface craft, torpedo boats. Hong Kong was to build a hundred of them on the model we're sending. Somebody conceived the idea of shipping it as a common refrigerator on a tramp to avoid notice. In the event, it hasn't been very clever. I must want it badly if they'll kill and kidnap for it. There's only one ism that'll employ goon squads to get out know-how. How's the crate watched? There are RCMP men working as ordinary watchmen at Valentine Pier. Mm, how's it marked, the crate? A stenciled diamond with a V in the center. And underneath it, Hong Kong. Well, I've got a voice to work on and a motive. 
I'll be looking around, Mr. Blair. I'll phone you back later and see if you've heard again from Mr. Smith. All right, Mr. Gray. But for God's sake, be careful. I want my boy back. All the jet engines in Christendom regardless. We'll get him back, Mr. Blair. So long for now. It was six o'clock when I got back to my office in the Marine Building. Irene had gone. I looked up Lloyd's register and the port directory for the day. The steamer Farndale was British flag, British owned. The Verde was also British flag, but Greek owned. That gently meant a nondescript crew, but a British master and radio operator to meet the regulations. Both ships were at Valentine Pier, both scheduled to leave for Hong Kong next night, the Verde via Manila. Whatever was going to happen, it was going to have to happen fast. I was about to leave for Valentine Pier, and my phone rang. Don Gray here. Mr. Gray, Horton Blair. Ah. I've just heard from Smith again. Uh-huh. Looks like he's hopping from one phone booth to another. So? He's given me what he calls his orders. There have to be no suspicious moves at any time. I'm to give the supercargo written instructions to change the marks and reconsign the crate to Manila on the Verde and duplicate the original markings on another crate. When's all this going to happen? When work starts in the morning, openly, as if it's official. What's to be the change in the marks, apart from the port of destination? The V to be changed to M. Does he figure he'll know whether it's done? He says they know the exact location in the shed, B-12, and is right. Hmm. And his own man is planted among the longshoremen. They'll know. Well, I guess you better just do what he says, Mr. Blair. What? Play along with him, as long as we know where the thing is. Oh my God, Mr. Gray, it's bound to come out the supercargo himself. Who is your supercargo? His name is Brett Willis. When you give him your instructions, tell him he's got a new checker reporting. Call me Dan Grant. I'll report to him at 8 in the morning. For the love of heaven, It's Gray. okay. I've got their measure. How long for now? I had a yarn on the phone with Sergeant Kane, and then I hauled out my knife and some old charts I kept around began to cut stencils, like a diamond with a V in the center, like Hong Kong, Manila. Took me back a ways to my own sailing days. It was after eight now, dark outside. I put a shoebush and blacking in my pocket, and I took off my tie, opened my shirt, shrugged into an old raincoat, and left for Valentine Pier, but not in my car. I took the Paul Street bus. He dropped me off at the beer parlor near the wharf. And when I stank enough of belly wash, I started rolling toward the gate. The watchman stopped me. Where you going, Mac? Oh, man. Where am I going? Liable to be over the dock the way you are. Okay. My name's Ferguson. Gray. Yeah, all right. Mm-hmm. The sergeant called. Here are the keys. Seen anyone around? Uh, quiet at the boneyard, Mr. Gray. But that don't mean anything. Mm. If you see a man by the Farndale gangway, it'll be Crane. Okay, send me on my way. And don't give me any guff. Come on, on your way, Mac. All right, all right. I didn't have to go as far as the Farndale's gangway. The wicked door of the shed was in front of me and out of range of the lights. Inside the shed.
swung my flashlight around. The long shed, general cargo in bales, boxes, crates, and barrels crowding each side of the fairway. The sections were marked on the uprights. I located B-12. I moved to where the crate was. Just then I heard a sound. They headed me into the right. I doused my light. Could have been a rat, even a two-legged brand. I listened. It wasn't repeated. I slid along carefully without the light. And then it happened. I thought a ton of bales had dropped on me. Lightning flashed before me, and my throat was being squeezed in the hands of a gorilla. I turned a somersault, and my attacker went headlong. I heard wood splintering, but he was back like he'd been catapulted. He was a giant in the dark. Next time I sprang him off, I picked up a case and met his head with it. But his head must have been marble. He started off towards the door. I wanted to shoot, but I wanted him alive. He wasn't so fussy. I heard him stop. Gun blazed. I dropped behind what felt like a bale and grew my own. If that's how he wanted it. There was dead silence now. I strained my eyes and ears. I wondered if the boys outside had heard. If they rushed in here, the bag would be skinned off the cat, and Ronnie Blair's life wouldn't be worth peanuts. I held my breath. My ears were reaching for the sound of the goons breathing. There was nothing but the lapping of water below the pier. Funny I hadn't noticed it before. I took the knife out of my pocket flicked it silently about ten paces ahead of me. He could have been playing possum. I took it carefully. He could have been, and he was. I could see him now. I let him have it. I went back for my flashlight and took a look at him. Whoever he was, he was as hairy a knife as I ever saw in a mug's gallery. But he was no use to me. He was dead. And at that, he was a menace to Ronnie Blair. I went over and opened the side door. <coughs> the side away from the ship's berth. I dragged the body over and slid it into the drink. Tide would take it away for a while, anyway. Then I went over to Section B-12 and got to work with my stencils. Somebody was going to get a headache eventually, because they were going to redirect a crate with anything but a jet engine in it. And then I left. I locked the door after me and returned the keys to the watchman, Elias Ferguson, RCMP. What? You again? Everything okay, Mr. Gray? I'm going for another bottle, pal. Hear anything in there? Not a thing. And everything's swell. I'll be phoning the surge. Okay, knucklehead. If you want another drink, it's your funeral. Well, sure, somebody. Slong shot. I hadn't gone far. I wasn't across the railway track when somebody stepped out from behind a truck. Going somewhere, fella? Ah, glass of beer. Beer power up the road. Off one of the ships? Right. Verdi, lousy ship. You gotta keep drunk to stand her. Uh-huh. Come on? No. No, I guess not. Have yourself a good time. Yeah, yeah. He was no cop, that one. 
I wanted him along so I could see him, but I couldn't force him. There must have been others, and that would have fluffed Ronnie Blair's chances of survival. I went on to the beer parlor for the benefit of other watching eyes, and when I got back to my apartment, I phoned Kane. Sergeant, Don Gray here, Spearhead. Spearhead? For Kane. Okay. <laughs> How did it go? Swell. I had a hood planted in the shed, keeping an eye on the crate. Somebody's going to find his body in the harbor sooner or later. Hey, what did you say? Had to be one of us, Kane. All I'm asking is, if it's found sooner, don't publish the fact. They won't miss him till morning, but give me till noon. So what happens in the morning? I'll be switching crates, all right. But at somebody's plow, they'll be shipping to Manila. That's just in case. And the boy? I'm relying on being able to think like a goon. If I can... <laughs> that comes natural to you, Greg. Okay, Flatfoot. At least it's thinking. Now do some listening. At 8 o'clock in the morning, I was on the dock, dressed in an old lumber jacket, and reporting to Brett Willis, who'd been pointed out to me. He was just coming out of the dock office, stencils in one hand, pot and brush in the other. He was quite young, harassed as all supercargoes are by nature. I stopped him. Dan Grant, checker. That's right, I was expecting you. Yeah. Ready to start? Right away. Well, take this pot then and uh, come with me. Some marks to be changed on the crate, section B-12. Okay. Look out for that trolley. Yeah. Shoreman had turned to, loading cases onto trays to run out to the ships. There was one guy close by who wasn't doing much of anything. He was moving cases around without any purpose. And he was close enough for me to see that his hands hadn't done an honest day's work in years. While we were busy changing the marks, he came over and stood watching us. He asked kindly. Uh, somebody make a mistake? Yeah, apparently. How come? How the heck do I know? Why don't you just get on with your own job? That's a thought, ain't it? I'll get a hand truck, help you shift the crate. I got up off my haunches, pushed a note into Willis's hand. I said, that's an idea. If I went over here... Huh? Don't move your hands. There's a gun under this set of stencils. What's the idea? I done nothing. Yeah, and I should take your word for it. Turn around. Look, mister. Unless you want your lights blown up. Okay. Now, hook your thumbs in your shirt pockets and saunter out of the shed as if you meant to saunter. I'll be right behind you. Clear the shed, turn left to where the tool shed is. If any of your buddies are around, you're just going in for a smoke with a pal. Okay, through the door. Hey, what is this? All right, Sergeant. Here's the sprat that's going to catch us our mackerel. Let's see what's in his pocket. And a bright-looking sprat he is. <laughs> okay, Pinhead, you've had your run. Now let's have the story. Look, I'm a longshoreman, huh? Well, those hands come again, pal. But we're not interested in you any more than in any other hunk of refuse. Who's at the head of this thing? Listen, I'm only... Yeah, according to this driving license, your name's Harry Bolton. Otherwise, you're a dirty hoodlum. Now, let's have names. Big names. And fast. I'm saying nothing. All right. Where there's a youngster's life at stake, I'm not fussy about how I get the answers. Okay, Sergeant? I got no rank. I'm just plain Patty Kane for this show. Go ahead, Don. All right. Lay off. It's Thorin you want. I'm Thorin. Ship's Chandler? Yeah, that's right. The ship's Chandler on East Hastings. Well, I'll be darned. Couldn't afford to lose any time. If they missed two of their goons and a warning went along the line, we'd be sunk. We pushed Bolton through a window away from the wharf and into the sergeant's car.
I help you? Mr. Thornton? Yeah, in his office. Over there. I'll tell him. Never mind. Mr. Thorne? That's right. Don't get up. I'm not buying anything. Uh, My card, Mr. Thorne. Don Gray, Marine Investigator. Oh, yes. I've uh, heard of you. What can I do for you? Plenty. Were you ever known as plain Mr. Smith, pal? Plain Mr. <laughs> I'm afraid I don't understand. Don't you. waste my time. I never forget a voice. Stand up. Hold it. Keep your hands steady. Yeah. Now, where's Ronnie Blair? Who's he? Well, I must confess. I'm You'll confess, confess, all right. We've got one of your boys out in the car. His name's Bolton. There's another we'll be asking you to identify when the harbor spews up the body. The game's up, Thorne. The state of your health will depend on Ronnie Blair's. Where is he? You heard me. I had nothing to do with the murder of the chauffeur. That's something else. The hair of that boy's head has been harmed. He's all right. He's on a houseboat at Cole Harbor. Okay, we're going to get him. In your car. You'd better guarantee his safe delivery. I gave Kane the nod as we passed his car. One of his men had joined him. Others in plain clothes were tailing by arrangement. It was a lousy-looking houseboat at that. An old hull with a frame shack built on deck. It was the only thing out on the jetty. When we boarded, we were met by another ape. His eyes squinted between Tharn and myself. Tharn said, Bring the boy up. Bring him up. Bring him on deck, walking. We're moving him. Okay, okay. Mr. Gray, I uh, hope his treatment will be taken into consideration. Oh, sure. Hangman might allow you another fathom. Depends. Ronnie's legs were free, but his hands were tied. His face was practically covered by the hand of the gorilla who brought him. I stepped across, but Thorin was ahead of me. He grabbed the boy and held him in front of him and began backing towards the gangway. The goon stood with his mouth open, and if he'd been able to think at all, I didn't give him any time. I stamped on his toes and butted him over the side. And then I went after Thorin as he backed down the jetty towards his car. He had a knife in his hand. It was held at the chest of Ronnie Blair. Don't take another step, Gray. I'll make a deal. Let me get in my car. Uh-huh. I'll release the boy at my car if you stay where you are. I'm rooted here. Go ahead. Throw your gun in the dock. Anything you say. Okay. Don't move. He was walking backwards. He hadn't seen that there was another car there. And he'd yet to learn how light in the step a flat foot could be. <laughs> he backed right into the homicide squad. I went back for the ape who was still struggling in the drink. says Hans Thorne was a killer and a red agent. Is, is. They haven't hanged him yet. Well, why don't they? Irene, this is a civilized country. We try them first, then we hang them. Come on, let's have a look at the new wine bars. (laughs) 
Don Gray, Marine Investigator, is a CBC Vancouver production with Doug Haskins in the title role. The supporting cast included Stan Jones as Blair, Frank Wade as Nelson, Kit Malkin as Ronnie, Lee Taylor as Bolton, Monty McFarlane as Willis, Walter Marsh as Thorne, Juan Root as Ferguson, Dorothy Fowler as Irene, and Eric Vale as Sergeant Kane. Marine Investigator is directed by Raymond Whitehouse, with sound sequence by Ted Levesque and Frank Vivian. Control operator, Bob McDonald. Next week at this time, Don Gray goes back to sea. But not because he feels a yearning for his first love. This time his quarry is a ghost. A routine investigation of a mysterious tapping noise below decks develops into a threatened mutiny at sea and a double murder. This is Ray Nichol. We'll see you next week in Port of Vancouver for another exciting adventure with Don Gray, Marine Investigator. Our next show is from our Canadians Abroad segment, and it's called House Party. And the episode is October 6th, 1949. Now, the host of House Party was Art Linklater, and uh, he was indeed a Canadian born in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. So here he is with House Party. in Hollywood, presented to you by Pillsbury, makers of those wonderful new Pillsbury cake mixes, and starring Art Linklater. Well, it's Pillsbury time again here in Southern California, where the very first breath of uh, fall in the autumn is in the air today, a little chilly, but we have a wonderful warm audience, and among them we may find today's winner of the weekly contest. This week, as you know, at the Pillsbury House Party, we're looking for the oldest father with a child under a year of age. And you never can tell who we're going to find. So, fellas, let's circulate up and down the aisle and find some fathers who have a child under a year of age and who is uh, perhaps 30 or 40 or 50 or 150. What is the oldest that we find out there? They're making 33. 62. 62. That's pretty good. Uh, uh, any older than 62? 90 what? Oh, that's his seat number back there. This is the man who's 62 coming up now on the stage. Wearing a little goatee? How do you do, sir? Nice to see you. I haven't seen one of those little chin whisker adornments for a long time. That's on account of uh, an accident that I had last night. Oh, so you wear them? 
You have a couple of scars there, so you wear a little uh, mustache. What is your name, sir? Owen Jensen. And uh, where do you come from, Owen? Uh, I was originally uh, come from Utah. I was born in Pleasant Grove, Utah. Uh-huh. And what's your business? I a, was a tattoo artist for 32 years. Now I manufacture uh, equipment, and I sell it to uh, chinchilla ranchers and fur farmers all over the country. Chinchilla ranchers? Well, no wonder you're wearing that little uh, <laughs> goatee. That's sort of a chinchilla. Uh, what are you carrying here? You here's, have... a, here's the, the uh, here's a write-up we got here. Oh, and the Los Angeles Examiner. It says that the... This is your this is your daughter? No, no. This Wait is my son. Well, I mean, oh, so you can't tell in the picture. It's a little boy or a little girl. Yeah, and uh, that is your wife? Yes, yes, sir. Oh, it says here, Dainty Dotties first. Circus fat lady smiles as her nine-pound, four-and-a-half-ounce son, born in cesarean operation yesterday, voices his objection. Oh, you married a circus fat lady? Yes, sir. Well, I'll be darned. I guess you met her because you were a circus tattooer? Well, I met her through... She was also a tattoo artist, and she came to me to buy uh, uh, supplies, tattoo supplies. And how much did she weigh? Well, she uh, weighed about 585 pounds. <laughs> when you fell in love with her? Yes. Well, you certainly got a lot there, didn't you? <laughs> Think of all the tattoo territory there was. Huh? I have tattooed her. She's tattooed she on her is. Acres and acres and all mine. Well, tell me, did you, uh, did, has, she, uh, has she reduced any? Oh, yes. They reduced her a great deal for, the, uh, for this operation. In other words, most ladies gain weight when they're going to have babies. Yours lost. She lost. Uh, how much? How many pounds did she lose? Well, I think she lost about 125 pounds. Oh, uh-huh. some people here would vanish completely if they lost that many pounds. If you want some real identification, here it is. Oh my goodness! Look at that. Turn around and show the folks. He has tattooed inside his lower lip where it doesn't show ordinarily his name, your name. In other words, they will always be able to know who you are. That's right. And this is your first child. My first child. At the age of 62. 62. And the circus fat lady. That's right. Oh, that's a wonderful story. Believe me, that is an amazing human interest story. And I see you brought along the birth certificate of the child. Uh, And that proves that a lady who weighs three or 400 pounds doesn't have babies that weigh any more than than the average baby. No. Uh Uh-huh. Well, for being today's winner, we have several prizes for you to take home to Mama, a package of Pillsbury white cake mix to keep her weight... Oh, you use it all the time. All the time. Fine. And here's a set of King's Men in gold flagons, the world's finest toiletries for men, for you, and for the baby, a full year's supply of assorted beech nut baby foods, eight cases full, especially packed in sparkling Jura glass jars for convenient warming and storing. Compliments of Pillsbury. Thank you very much. Oh, isn't that an interesting interview, Jack? Certainly is, Art. You know what? I have an idea. I'm going to have Pillsbury tattooed right on your nose. (laughs) Oh, that's television. We're getting ready for it. Who's our next guest? All right, over here we have Mrs. Myers, and uh, you better look out because she says she's a mighty good cook. I'll bet you are. You look like a good cook. Your first name is? Honor Myers. Honor. That's a nice name for a lady, isn't it? Where'd that come from? Oh, my grandmother. Uh-huh. And you're from where? Santa Monica. And originally? Chicago. And you're a grandmother yourself? Right. How many children did you have? Three. And how many grandchildren? Two. How long have you been cooking, uh, Honor? About 30 years. And uh, can you bake a cake? 
Yes, I've baked, but I've had a lot of failures. As long as, uh, along with the good ones. That's who, right. Who taught you to bake a cake? Well, I learned myself, I guess. You know, your, your mother didn't teach you as a no. little girl? Uh-huh. Didn't they used to stick a straw in cakes? To... That's right. They don't need to do that anymore, do no. you? Uh -huh. You say you've had failures, uh, but have you ever tried Pillsbury? I tried it for the first time last Thursday. And what happened? I was uh, amazed to find what a good cake I could make. Without going to all the trouble that's that true. you had. Well, of course, if you've been cooking for how many years? Thirty. Thirty years. That's quite a switch for a lady. Thirty years one way, and then you switch to a new way. And I hope that our listening ladies will take your advice, and I'm delighted to know that this is a true story from you, Honor. You live with your husband, or...? I'm a widow. You're a widow now, so you don't make too many cakes. Oh, yes, I do. You do? Mm -hmm. For the neighbor kids? No, for my daughters. Good, good. I think it's important that no matter how long you've been cooking, you have an open mind about trying something new. And if you ladies have never tried Pillsbury chocolate fudge cake mix, I wish you would. All you have to do, and you check me on this, Honor, you just add milk. Isn't that right? That's right. You can't miss. Your results are perfect every time. And, of course, the same is true of Pillsbury white cake mix. Now, we want you to have a package of each, Mrs. Myers, and for being our guest today, a beautiful twin waffle iron to take home. Compliments of Pillsbury. Goodbye. And now, Art Linkletter talks to our five, nine to 11-year-old school children who were brought here in a Tanner limousine from the Virginia Road School. Uh, the, the what school is that, Virginia? Virginia Road. Oh, that's a public school, isn't it, uh, Gary? Yes. My, you're a handsome-looking fellow. Stand up here. Let me see how tall you are. You're uh, how old, Gary? I'm 11 years old. What's your whole name? Gary Judas. Now, you have one of these trick haircuts where you comb it back at a pompadour and then suddenly switch it over in a, in a sort of a, a ducktail. Isn't that what it's called? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's pretty fancy. What are you, uh, what are you aiming to be uh, when you grow up, Gary? I'd like to be uh, an actor on television, an impersonator. Oh, uh -huh. well, that's quite good for a boy of your size because by the time you're my age, we'll we'll really have television. You think? Yes. Well, who would you? Who can you impersonate? Can you impersonate anybody? Uh, yes, I can impersonate Peter Lorre. Well, let me hear a little of Peter Lorre. I am going to kill you. <laughs> I I will take off your head and throw it in your face. <laughs> well, I think that's a good start. Do you? It's a nice, pleasant outlook on life. Uh, do you have any other impersonations? Uh, yes, I can impersonate uh, Humphrey Bogart. Well, let me hear Humphrey Bogart. All right, Lloyd, come out of that bathroom and come clean. <laughs> That's Humphrey Bogart as a child. Uh, uh, who else do you have? Um, I, uh, Jimmy Stewart I can impersonate. Well, let me hear a little of Jimmy Stewart. When I was a boy, my mother said crime wouldn't pay. Yeah, yeah, at least as much as it used to. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the word fair means. Say, so, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I think that Edward G. Robinson was passing there, right in the middle, said hello to Jimmy. Thank you, Gary. I think you're a fine actor. And Rhoda, what's your whole name? Rhoda Corba. Rhoda Corba. And I knew a girl once who, whose first name was, whose last name was Stump, and they called her Rhoda. That's the absolute Rhoda Stump. But you're Rhoda Corbin. How old are you, Rhoda? Ten. I'll bet you're a lot of help around the house, huh? Uh-uh. You are? Don't you ever fix anything or do anything? Yeah, sometimes. What do you fix? Oh, I... Just any old thing. Any old thing around the house that looks like it needs fixing, huh? What does your daddy and mother do, Rhoda? 
Well, my father's a painter and my mother's a housewife. Your father's a painter. What sort of things does he do? Portraits? No, he paints houses. Oh. Well, Rhoda, what do you like to do best? Well, I just like to make new friends. Well, I think that's a wonderful thing to make new friends. If you make lots of friends in your lifetime, you're going to be a very, very rich girl. Do you know what that means? No. Well, that means that friendship is really much more to be desired than money, and you'll be rich in friends. And Rhoda, what uh, what do you think you'll be? What do you want? What do you want to be when you grow up? I just want to get married. <laughs> That's all. Just want to get married. What uh, what kind of a man do you have in mind, Rhoda? Oh well, see, I'm short, and I, I'm short, and I want a man that won't call me shirt stuffing peanuts. I think that's a reasonable request that your husband not call you short stuff or peanuts. Uh, Anybody around here call you short stuff or peanuts? Gary Judas and Eddie Abraham. Gary. <laughs> Gary. Do you call her short stuff? No. Do you call her peanuts? No. What do you call her? A lot of names. <laughs> But not those two. Well, you don't marry him then, will you, Rhoda? No. All right. He says so, too. Hello, young man. You stand up here. Since we have big boys and girls today, instead of sitting down, I'll talk to you while you're standing up. You're Mr. Who? Robert Del Campo. Uh-huh. Robert, I understand you're a businessman. Yes, I sell papers at Crenshaw and Washington. That's a very busy corner, and you're there every morning or afternoon or when? No, uh, I start selling at 4 o'clock and I end at 6.15. Yeah, well, you know that this is an advertising plug that you're getting on the radio right now? Yes. You know what this time is worth coast to coast? <laughs> no. You just talk there for about 20 seconds. That will cost you $890. That how, much? Yeah, how much do you make a week? Five dollars. Well, maybe we better take a percentage for the next 10 years. What paper do you sell, Robert? Lear. Uh-huh. How does it sell these days? Not too good. How many do you sell between 4 and 6.30? Fifteen. Fifteen papers? Yeah. Is that all? Yeah. Well, how much how, how much do you make per paper? I don't. I make a dollar a night guarantee. Oh, uh-huh. And do you get any tips? Yeah, sometimes. Who tips, the men or the women? The men. Well, how does it happen that the women don't tip? Because they have the nickel. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and the men have uh, extra change, huh? Well, the mirror is a mighty fine paper, and I'll bet you're a mighty fine businessman, Robert. What do you do with the money you make, the $5 a week? I usually buy stuff. What do you buy, for instance? You got anything that you can show us that you bought? Yeah, this coat. How much the coat cost? Uh, $10. Well, that's pretty darn good. I bet you shop for it yourself, too, huh? No, I went with my mom and my dad. Well, they picked it out, and you paid for it. Yeah. Oh, brother. Okay, Robert, he's a fine young businessman. I think he deserves a lot of credit. What is your name, honey? Janice Wells. And uh, Janice, what, uh, how old are you? Ten. What does your daddy do? Well, he, he works in the good humor business. Oh, your dad's a good humor man. Yeah. Oh, I bet I know what you like to eat, huh? <laughs> ice cream? Yes. What's your favorite ice cream? Sherbet. Oh. <laughs> Favorite ice cream is sherbet. Well, what flavor, I mean, huh? Uh, orange and vanilla. Oh. What do you think you'll be, Janice? A good humor woman? No, I don't want to be that. What do you want to be? I'm going to be an actress or a singer. Oh, an actress or a singer? Can you act? Yes. Well, we'll give you an audition. What do you want to do? Do a couple of dramatic lines for us. Oh, how come you leave me when I love you so? <laughs> That's enough. How can you leave me, huh? 
I won't leave you, honey. Well, here's another. Uh, how'd you like that acting, huh? Okay. She put a lot of heart in that, didn't she? I think she was looking at you when she said that. <laughs> What's your name? My name's Rolf Polishar. Who? Rolf Polishar. Polishar. What kind of a name is that? I don't know. I got mixed up there somewhere. <laughs> Everybody ought to know where his name. Where'd you come from, anyway? The hospital. <laughs> Your family, uh, is that, uh, that must be, uh, it must be a name from Middle Europe somewhere, huh? How about the first name, R-A-U-L-F? Oh, my a... dad took that out of the alphabet. You mean he just picked letters out of the alphabet at random? Yeah. Well, you might have been named Scroof. you got the wrong ones. What do you like to do best? <coughs> Thinking with radio. You have a radio? I got a lot of radio. Maybe you'll turn out to be a radio engineer. Would you like to be that? Yes. I'll have you meet our engineer right after we're off the show, and maybe you'll change your mind. <laughs> Good luck to you, Ralph, and all of the five youngsters who are today. We want you to take back to your public school with you a table model radio for the classmates to enjoy, a table model radio from Stromberg Carlson, makers of the finest in television, and for each of you, a sensational new Whitaker-made pixie camera with color film. Compliments of Pillsbury. Goodbye, Hey, you know, Art, ever since we got our new sponsor, Pillsbury, I've been in for an awful ribbing. How's that, Jack? How's that? Well, uh, every time you talk about how easy it is to make a cake with Pillsbury Cake Mix, you say, why, even Jack Slattery can make one. Well, what about it? Well, it makes me look as though I were incompetent or something. So right now, I'm going to mix up a Pillsbury white cake, and I'm going to do it blindfolded. Blindfolded? Mm -hmm. Watch this, ladies and gentlemen. Bring on the blindfold. Put the apron over him, and Marty, give him the blindfold. Now he's walking back towards the table. Jack Slattery is about to mix a cake blindfolded. Now, now you've got the tabletop in mind, have you, Jack? I'm ready. All right, what are you going to do first? Well, all I do is reach for the Pillsbury white cake mix and yeah. pour it into the bowl here. He's pouring it right in the and bowl. And I reach for the milk, and I measure out, I think that's a cup, isn't it? Yeah, I measure out. You're pouring a... it down the front of my coat. Sorry, old man. That's I, good. Uh, I measure out a cup of milk, I pour half of the milk into the bowl, I reach for the spoon, stir it up, and I'm on my way to a wonderful white cake. It's How easy, do you like that? It? He's making a cake blindfolded, ladies, and that proves it that Jack Slattery could even mix up a Pillsbury white cake. But what's more, he can do it blindfolded, and so can you. Of course, you don't have to to get a cake that's so tender and so moist. It's the kind of cake that'll have folks talking behind your back, asking how come you can turn out such a marvelous cake and what your secret is. So don't do it blindfolded. Don't do it Jack Slattery. But try Pillsbury White Cake Mix in your own kitchen. And while you're at it, try Pillsbury Chocolate Fudge Cake Mix, too. They're both wonderful. And now, Art Linkletter welcomes a special guest. Our guest today is a man who has, spent, who has spent his entire life and works every day trying to save you money by teaching the American public how to avoid racketeers and swindlers. The head of the Better Business Bureau activities in these parts, Mr. Bob Sample. Bob? Uh, how are you? Let's see, Bob, it's been since last spring since we chatted about what the racketeers are trying to foist on the American housewives. What's the newest thing? Well, the newest thing is called the golden gimmick. The golden gimmick. Well, That's a gimmick, right. I know, is any kind of a device, and gold uh, speaks for itself. But what is the golden gimmick? Well, the golden gimmick is a door opener for a lot of salesmen that uh, 
wanted to have some tricks to sell the housewives. And so what is forth. the gimmick they use? Well, in this particular thing, they uh, indicate that they are making a survey or that the housewife will be able to help make a survey frequently. And uh, it spoils a lot of real surveys. A lot of people are interested in helping any kind of a survey for the good of everybody concerned. And so when you find somebody that uses it as a trick to, to sell people something sometimes that they don't want, or to probably, uh, shall I say, case the house. Oh, you mean that a man might come to the door and you're anxious to be in the survey, and he asks you when you're at home and when the maid's at That's home and right. so forth. He can find out when you're not there. But when you're not there so that he can move in if, he, if they, he's so inclined. Well, uh, do, you, do they find out that most women uh, want to be part of surveys? Yes, they do. They're very interested. Survey seems to be a magic word, and therefore it spoils the real legitimate surveys when they have a lot of phonies operating. So what should our listeners do when a man comes to the door and says, I want to make a survey? If they can't show credentials of some real survey, some legitimate survey organization, don't answer any questions. And if they don't show you the uh, credentials, don't give them any information. Thank you very much, Bob. And now let's go down in the audience. I hope those words of wisdom will save a lot of you listeners from losing money that you don't have to. Now, uh, we're going to ask for some volunteers who have questions for Bob Sample about things that they might have run across in their own life. And I see a sergeant standing up in the second row. Where are you from, sergeant? Uh, I'm from South Dakota. I'm and, in Wilmington now. And you live in what? What's your name? Uh, sergeant John Gleason. Sergeant John Gleason. What would you like to, like to ask Bob? I've got a question here. I have received several offers for my oldest daughter, which is two, to try out for television. I'd like to know what kind of racket that is. You have a daughter two years of age, yeah. and people want to get her into television. Yes. What about that, Bob? Well, that's the old uh, counselor racket, uh, where they tell people that they are interested in having their children for television and so forth. Then they get them in to, to charge them a fee uh, to either have their pictures, t the child's picture taken, or to uh, come in and get training and so forth, and they usually they have no connections whatever with any legitimate television organization or anything of that kind. Better save your money. Your chances of his child getting into television would be about one in a thousand. Well, that's 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 a high percentage. I mean, it would probably be more like one in twenty-five hundred because they seldom ever get in as in that fashion. Sergeant, I hope we've saved you a lot of trouble and some expense. Thank you. Very Pick much. out a number from one to a hundred. 99. 99. Well, that may win you something. Let's see. Here's another volunteer, a lady who's come up here. Her name is Mrs. J. Durr. From where? Los Angeles. What would you like to ask, Mr. Sample? Would you recommend a Lonely Hearts Club for a way to meet new men friends? A well, Lonely Hearts Club. Now, that is something that you read about in uh, papers and you hear about uh, all over the United States. Would, well, you, would you recommend that as a way for a lonely woman to meet a lonely man? I certainly would not recommend it because there have been times when people have been swindled out of money as a result of those that type of organization. In other words, uh, while you can't prove it always on the... Yeah, you can't always prove it, but nevertheless, they, they sometimes use that as a means to get the confidence of the person interested and then fleece them of any money that they may have. It's not against the law for a Lonely Hearts Club to operate. Well, it all depends. You have to have prove a lot before you can prove that it is a violation of the law, but it just isn't a good idea to meet people in that fashion. In other words, you folks in the Better Business Bureau would like to uproot them, but it's pretty hard to get rid of them. Well, that's right. That's right. Is that good enough advice for you? Very fine. Thank you. You pick a number from one to a hundred. Fifty-five. Thank you very much. Let's get a man here over here on the left side. His name is Mr. Uh, John Durker. Where are you from, John? Monterey. What do you do? 
I'm a naval officer. A naval officer in civilian suit today. What would you like to ask Mr. Sample? Well, I've received uh, numerous uh, material through the mail, insurance uh, material, and it's been from out-of-state companies. Uh, is this legitimate business? They want to get your life insurance yes, sir. by mail. Yes, sir. Oh, what about that, Bob? The only thing I can do there is caution you to deal with an insurance company that is licensed to do business in the state where you live because frequently if you do buy mail-order insurance, you may uh, have to travel many, many miles to another state to collect any claim you may have because they, they, if they are not licensed to do business in this state, they don't need to answer any suits that there may come as a result of your situation. So in order to do it, you have to go back to the state where they are located. Causing you a lot of expense and inconvenience. Probably more expense than you'll collect. How's that, Lieutenant? Fine. Is Thank it Lieutenant? You. Lieutenant Commander. All right, sir. You pick a number from 1 to 100. 23. 23. We have time for one more quickie. Let's go over to the other side, the man in the green pants. Your name is? Andrew Fair. Where are you from, Andy? Washington, D.C. And what do you do? Well, I'm going to be a student. Uh, you're going to be a student. Yeah. Well, what's your question? Well, I was wondering whether the regulations in connection with uh, rental fees to be paid to a real estate company in... Uh, Renting with, a house? Yes, with their In other words, you're a new arrival out That's here. That's right. Are there rules, Bob? Well, there are not definitely any rules. Usually, these outfits uh, charge a fee, and uh, they will put it on the basis of perhaps uh, $10 now and $25 additional if uh, they find you something. Now, the $10 is not refundable, so if they don't find you anything, you're out $10. They do just enough to make it possible to collect that, ten, make it legal to collect that $10, and then you may still be out of the house and out the 10 too. In other words, you shouldn't pay till you get something. That's a good idea. That's good advice. You pick a number from 1 to 100. 13. What's the lucky number today, Jackson? All right, our number is 4, and Andrew Fair was closest with 13. Stay right up here, Andy. You've won for yourself a new house. Oh, no, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> your prize is very lovely. It's an Evan Showcase, an ensemble of table lighters, one for every room in the house, two of the new sensation Evans automatic pocket lighters, all in a beautiful velvet lined walnut case. Compliments of Pillsbury. And thank you, Bob Sample, for being our guest of honor today. And now, listen to this. You know, one good way for you gals to make a hit at home is to dress up the dining room table with warm, fragrant, homemade rolls fresh out of the oven. Now, I know it used to take a lot of work and experience to bake good rolls, but no longer. Where's that little blue and white uh, package, fellas? Hold it up, will you please? It says Pillsbury Hot Roll Mix on it. You'll find this on your grocer's shelves, and believe me, the finest homemade rolls you've ever tasted are in there. All the dry ingredients are in a package of Pillsbury Hot Roll Mix, and even a special protective packet of lively high-vitality yeast to give you perfect results every time. To make the dough, you just add water to the yeast, stir in the mix, and it's that simple. The rolls, well, I've never eaten rolls more delicious. So take my advice, gals. Get yourself a package of Pillsbury Hot Roll Mix today. Well, looks like our time has gone by here. I had some other things in mind, but we'll be back on the air tomorrow giving a deserving singer his first break in radio. Until then, this is Art Linkletter saying goodbye from Pillsbury. Thanks for watching Hollywood. This is the John Goodell production. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Boy, that clock on the wall sure moves quickly when you're having fun, doesn't it, eh? 
Well, have a good week, and we'll see you next time. Bye for now. If you've enjoyed the shows you've heard during the past hour, be sure to tune in again next week, same time, same station, when once again, we'll listen to programs that are remembered today thanks to the involvement of Canadians in old-time radio. This is Devin Wilkins speaking. <laughs>